You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to Yahweh, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of Yahweh's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to Yahweh. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of Yahweh's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to Yahweh shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to Yahweh. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to Yahweh, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to Yahweh, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering, and the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to Yahweh. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 591 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, April 6th, 2023. And that was, of course, Leviticus chapter 2. I don't know if you knew that. Maybe I shouldn't say, of course, but it was. It was Leviticus chapter 2 in the English Standard Version. We have just gotten into Leviticus on this podcast, and we're very early in it. And for some of you, maybe I lose your attention as I go along here. Others, you're going to say, 
Eh, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, my interest is not to try and get you to say, oh, this is fine. I'm not going to twist your arm. Uh, it's also not to adjust accordingly to what people are going to supposedly listen to, what they won't listen to. You know what? Maybe leadership is doing what needs done, saying what needs said, and letting the chips fall where they may sometimes. And in this case, it's going to be taking the form of reading Leviticus chapter 2. If that loses people for me to read through a chapter at a time, or more than one chapter sometimes, uh, Leviticus and then Deuteronomy, well, so be it. But I think that's what's best. I think that's what I need to do. And I think that we should hold to the belief as Christians that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. What is all scripture profitable for? If you don't remember, I will read it for you. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, Paul says that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work, that the man of God may be complete. Now, what does that mean, to be complete? Well, I think this has to do with maturity. I think it has to do with not having major blind spots in your understanding. This has to do with wisdom. This has to do with uh, not just knowing things, actually. It's not just trivia. This has to do with doing good works, doing what is right, well, in order to do what's right, you have to know what's right. And you have to study. You have to pay attention. You have to listen. You have to read God's word. You have to pray and ask God for wisdom in order to know what is good, that you would do it. And sometimes it's not evident. Sometimes what is good to do is compared with what is evil to do, and that makes it simple. Sometimes what's good to do is compared with what's best to do. And that's when we really, really do need to be asking God for wisdom. Sometimes all the options we can see look so-so. And there again, it helps to seek out godly counsel. Hopefully, I'm giving you godly counsel in this podcast. Hopefully, if nothing else, you're coming away thinking about these passages of Scripture. They're brought to your recollection, and that is helpful. We know that God's word will not return void of power. And so even just the reading of God's word, regardless of how well I can explain it to you or apply it to various situations, we know, we have to know that God's word is going to accomplish what he has in view for it to accomplish. So I'm going to continue on reading through Leviticus with expectancy, with hope. But actually, you know, before we cover over Leviticus 2, and say no more about it, then, well, there must be some benefits, but who knows what? Let's do try, right? Let's do try to consider it. Let's, let's work on the premise that there is a benefit and we might have to look for it, particularly when we do not offer burnt offerings. We don't offer grain offerings. We, we don't offer these things as Christians. Can we still get a benefit? Yes, we can. What might be the particular benefit to Leviticus 2. Well, for one thing, notice how God does pay attention to the details. I've noticed a thing sometimes when it comes to the more charismatic Pentecostal type Christian. 
that if you start getting into specifics and details and formulas and particulars and let's do this and this and this, but let's not add this into the mix because that's not going to go well together. You start getting into that kind of talk and very quickly, the more charismatic spiritual person supposedly, in my experience, the more Pentecostal charismatic Christian will say, well, we need to be led by the spirit. And I say, yes, but why are you assuming that the spirit won't lead us into some details, into some intentionality and into some particulars? Why would you assume that? Have you not read Leviticus chapter 2, for instance, where God gets very particular, he gets very specific? For instance, God says, hey, don't skip the salt, (laughs) right? For instance, for example, you shall not, you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And you get something of an association here between how a man of the house, for instance, might give instructions for the preparing of his meals in a particular way. How the ruler of a nation and of a people might give instructions for what he likes to eat or what smells and tastes he enjoys. You get something of an idea of that here in this passage and in others. And maybe that's part of the point that God wants his people to be associating their worship of him in the bringing of grain offerings, he wants them to associate that worship of him with the kind of reverence they would have for a king. Only more so, right? All of that plus, but not any less than you would give in the way of consideration and intentionality towards a human king. All the more should you give your best and pay attention to what would be excellent, what would be pleasing to God. And that's a phrase that comes up very often in these kinds of passages. God tells what would be pleasing to him. Well, there again, I think we get something of an idea of how God wants us to know him. He wants us to know him as a God who can be pleased and who we should want to please. Here's another problem I notice with Christians that I have had experience with and had dealings with all too often. Christians I've known, when they get overly severe and as counter to the Pentecostal charismatic strains as they can manage, they'll say, well, it's not possible for us to please God. That's not possible. That sounds like works righteousness. And I say, you clearly have not read your Bible carefully and closely if you think that pleasing God or the effort to please God and to do good works is somehow antithetical to the gospel. You haven't been reading very closely. If you think that just going through a certain rigmarole and following a certain formula, that that will please God, but your heart is far from him, well, then think again, right? Then think again. But you're saved by grace through faith, apart from works is dead. It's not faith, actually, if it's apart from works. You might be a worker of lawlessness, in fact, who is told, depart from me, I never knew you. And I don't want to be in that spot. I also don't want to be in the spot of somebody who says, thank God I'm not like this sinner. I also don't want to be the one who thinks that just having an emotional high all the time is the same thing as God being pleased. Just because I am pleased in 
the worship I'm giving to God. That doesn't mean that God is pleased or impressed. And these are all important things to note as finding some expression and suggestion in Leviticus 2. Another thing, another thing to consider is that not just God wanting to associate the way that his people recognize the service of surrounding nations to their kings or their gods, God actually is reclaiming something that always should have rightfully belonged to him in the first place and which those nations, those kingdoms are a pale imitation of. That's another possibility here, actually. And I tend to favor that explanation more highly, that this is something that rightfully has belonged to God from the very beginning, all along. And when others have done it, it it was actually them taking and corrupting something good, something originally good that God had ordained. So for instance, for example, it might be a good thing if a wife considers what food would please her husband and how can she love him well and serve him well to serve him food that he enjoys, serve him food that he likes, not serve him food that he doesn't care for, which he's told her, I really don't like that right? If there is some kind of parallel that is in the story of Cain and Abel, for instance, which maybe is not expanded on, but it is alluded to, well, then far and away before you had nations serving their kings and their emperors the way that nations have for thousands of years of recorded history, you had two brothers who were bringing offerings to God. And I think, again, here's a instance where you see maybe that grain offerings and such from Cain weren't really the big problem. That They weren't, first and foremost, unacceptable to God, as though God never accepts offerings of the kind that Cain was offering. But more to the point, what do we read in 1 Samuel 15, 22? To obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. And maybe that was more the point in the story of Cain and Abel and Abel's sacrifice being accepted, Cain's being rejected. Maybe there was no obedience that accompanied the sacrifice, the offering that Cain offered. His heart was far from God. And Abel's wasn't. Abel loved God. That's a possibility. And insofar as it would have been a lot more challenging, a lot more to give up for Cain to be accepted on those terms, if that were really the issue, why his offering was rejected, his brother's was accepted. Well then, also here, we should recognize that whether our relationship to God, our relationship to one another as we're serving and honoring one another. The big idea is not first and foremost, the particular foods. The big idea is, do you love me? Right? Do you love me? Here again, we've got a picture of food and consumption in relation to our devotion to God. When Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then when Peter becomes exasperated, he says, you know that I do. Why do you keep asking? And we know why. And he knew why. Jesus says, 
then feed my sheep. Right? Again and again throughout the gospel accounts, you have Jesus having compassion, feeling compassion towards, I don't think just appearing to feel compassion towards the crowds who came out to hear him preach, but actually feeling, also actually, actually feeling. He appeared to feel compassion. He also actually did feel compassion towards the crowds that came out to hear him preach and teach, came out to be healed of their illnesses and cleansed of their impurities and unrighteousness and have demons be cast out of them. Jesus had compassion. He felt compassion for them. He demonstrated compassion towards them, sometimes by feeding those who were hungry. Keep in mind, too, that in a recent episode, we were talking quite a lot about 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in relation to Dennis Prager's comments on pornography and whether lust is adultery. You can go back and check out that episode if you're a subscriber, if you're willing to pay 99 cents a month. I know it's a lot these days, but less and less. 99 cents a month is worth less and less every day, so it's getting cheaper all the time for you to subscribe to this podcast. If you go back after subscribing, you can listen to my comments on Dennis Prager and his roundtable discussion on the book of Exodus and the question of whether it is unlawful or wicked for a man to feel sexual desire towards a woman, whether it's always adultery or not. But I talked about 1 Corinthians 6. Well, here we have this passage. I'll remind you of it. Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 6.13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Matthew 15, 17, Jesus asks, do you not yet realize that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then is eliminated? And in that passage, Jesus is asking right before, do you still not understand? And then in the verse immediately after, he says, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart and these things defile a man. That's what actually makes you unclean, not what comes into your mouth. But all of this is to say, all of this is to say that God is very concerned with the inner world of our hearts and our minds, but where what is going on in our hearts and our minds takes expression in what we do and in what we say, how we relate to one another. He's also concerned about how <laughs> how we speak and act, right? Like it's not an either or, it's a both and, and for the same reason. I want to talk in this episode, putting aside for the moment the whole business regarding food, I want to talk about names, actually. This whole episode is going to be me explaining the names of my children and my wife, and more to the point, we are trying to come up with some names for this newest edition we're expecting to be born in November. And I did a thing last night. I made a spreadsheet, came up with a spreadsheet. It's not the first time I've tried to get everything down on a Word document or some other medium as to who is named what and what does their name mean and who's missing, what's missing in the way of uh, communication here as a family, what would balance us as a family to include more of. But of course, each time I do this is a little bit different and it is similar to the previous time, but 
Now it's expanded because we have more children. Our family has grown. More life has happened. More current events have unfolded in the world. And so I'm just going to start from the top. I'm going to start with who we are. My wife, myself, our eight children who have names to this point. I'm going to start with that spreadsheet. And then I'm going to talk through after that some of the ways that Lauren and I are thinking about what we might name our latest edition, our upcoming baby, boy or girl, we're not sure yet, come November. Uh, First, my name. My name, as you know, is Garrett Ashley Mullet. My first name means power of the spear or spear ruler. My middle name means ash tree clearing. Lauren's first name is actually taken from a Roman city from ancient times, Laurentum. Scholars think Laurentum etymologically is closely related to laurels. Laurel crowns, laurel wreaths were typically associated with the winning of competitions or great victories in battle, honors. But Lauren is related to the name Lorenz and comes from people being from this town, the city, uh, Laurentum. Her middle name, Lauren's middle name, is Elizabeth, means my God is an oath. Next, our oldest son, Josiah David Mullet. His first name means Yahweh supports. We call him Siah for short, but his full name is Josiah. It means Yahweh supports. His middle name is David. David means beloved. Both of these are Hebrew names. They were kings of Israel. Next is Elihu. We call him Eli for short. But Elihu, James Mullet, means my God is he, supplanter. Supplanter here would be, as I understand it, like a replacer, right? Somebody who is a substitute. Somebody who is going to change places with someone else. Replace someone else. My God is he, supplanter. Next is Solomon Emmanuel Mullet. Solomon is very closely related to the Hebrew word shalom. It means peace in Hebrew. You'll also hear in Arabic, another very closely related word, very similar sounding word, salam. But Solomon means peace. Emmanuel means God is with us. Peace. God is with us. Next is Daniel Joseph Mullet. We call him Dan for short. We call Solomon Saul for short. We call Daniel Dan for short. Daniel means God is my judge. Here again, we've got Hebrew names. Joseph means he will add. God is my judge. He will add. Next is Evelyn Grace Mullet. Evelyn is, in our minds, very closely related to the name Eve. Eve means to breathe, to live. Grace is self-evident. Grace is grace, and we need God's grace to breathe, to live, grace. And I'll be honest, with the others, there were specific characters from Old Testament and New Testament, especially the Old Testament, but also a little bit of New, who I really was inspired by reading about. And those characters from the Bible are the namesakes of my children. And I liked the meaning of 
their names. And then after those two primary considerations, I also liked that most of these are unusual names in our day. And in the case of Evelyn, first and foremost, my wife and I considered, do we like the meaning of the name and do we like the way that it sounds? So we weren't first and foremost thinking namesakes for Evelyn. We were first and foremost thinking, is this a beautiful and good thing that we would be naming her this? Next is Enoch Theophilus. Enoch walked with God. You may remember from Genesis. Enoch means dedicated, another Hebrew name. Theophilus is a Greek name, actually. It means friend of God. So dedicated friend of God. Next is John Lazarus Mullet. Lazarus is his middle name. John means Yahweh is gracious. Lazarus means my God has helped. At least this is what the baby names websites tell me. <laughs> uh, yeah, if there are multiple ways that these can be translated or little nuances I don't know about, let me know. But so far as I am aware, John means Yahweh is gracious. Lazarus means my God has helped. And again, the meaning is very important. I like John the Baptist. I like the Apostle John. I like the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John in the New Testament. I like that John the Apostle often refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. I think it's a personal detail that is amusing because it's somewhat self-promoting and tongue-in-cheek. You can imagine a little bit of a wry grin like, hey, you know, just so you guys know, I, I was his favorite. Let's be honest. There's a little bit of that. But also Lazarus. Lazarus was a rich man. And even though he was a rich man, he was a friend of Jesus. And Jesus loved him dearly. And the whole business with Lazarus getting ill and dying and God allowing that to happen. And for some reason, waiting until it had happened before raising Lazarus is intriguing to me. I think it's important. I think there's some significance and there's a mysterious component to it, but it's important. I also find it striking that the Gospels record that it's only after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the religious leaders who have been looking for ways to trip him up to this point, they decide they really hate him. There's a parallel here with Joseph and his brothers. When Jesus does his most impressive miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, that's when they decide they want to kill him and Lazarus, which is, I think, an important thing to notice about human nature. People are not inherently good. And religious people, I just so you know, just so you're aware, religious people are not inherently good just because they're religious. And don't you go thinking just because you're religious or I'm religious, that therefore that makes us good people. No, 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 no. No, only God is good, as Jesus replies when he's asked. Good teacher, you know, and then the question, but Jesus goes back to the introductory title. Why do you call me good? Now, that should be our attitude as well to people that we think of as being so good and so religious, including ourselves, especially. Next up is Andrew, Andrew Matthias Mullet. Andrew means manly or masculine. 
I call him Andrew the Mandrew for that reason. Matthias means gift of Yahweh. Andrew was our first baby born alive after one miscarriage and an ectopic pregnancy that resulted in a miscarriage. And we are so thankful for him. He lights up our world. And so we call him Andrew Matthias. He's a manly gift from God in our view. Now, another interesting thing, you know, here's the meanings of our names that I've just talked with you through and some of why they're named as they're named. But it's curious to me that not all of our kids have nicknames. Enoch doesn't have a nickname except the Yeti. We call him the Yeti, but it's not a shortening of his first name. He just has a smile that reminds us of Bumble the Abominable Snowman from the old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer live-action claymation stop-motion Christmas show. We call him the Yeti. Uh, John, he looks so much like Daniel that we call him Johnyel sometimes. Andrew the Mandrew, I suppose you could say, is a nickname. But they're not shortened, right? Like They're already fairly succinct first names. Andrew, John, Enoch, you know, two syllables, one syllable, two syllables. Uh, An interesting thing, and this is trivia. It's not like it's the most important thing about our kids' names, but I am considering it. I'll, I'll put it that way. And if you've ever struggled at all with naming a child, uh, you know, sometimes you start trying to think outside the box and some of the things that are outside the box, you realize, well, maybe they were outside of the box for a good reason. They should have stayed outside the box. Don't put them in the box. But (laughs) one of the columns that I made on this Excel spreadsheet, yes, I like Excel spreadsheets. I'm a nerd. One of the columns that I put in here has to do uh, with the number of syllables in our kids' names. Uh, Fun fact, fun fact, we have three monosyllabic names in our family. One is a first name. The other two are middle names. John is the only monosyllabic name in our family. Most of us are two syllables. Uh, Elihu James, right? Eli's middle name is monosyllabic. So is Evelyn's Grace. Grace is one syllable. Most of our names are two syllables. Besides, uh, the second second up, uh, <laughs> second place goes to three syllables. We've got seven names with three syllables. We have slightly more with two, eight that have two syllables. We have two names that have four syllables, and I love them. I love those names. Emmanuel, four syllables. Solomon Emmanuel. The longest name, if we don't shorten it to his nickname, Saul, S-O-L, that's the longest name. It's, but, it, but it flows, right? It flows in a way that is lyrical. I like the way that it flows. Solomon Emmanuel Mullet. It's easy to say. And it's like water going over rounded riverbed rocks, to my way of thinking. Next up is Enoch Theophilus. That's six syllables. Lauren Elizabeth is 
five, Josiah David, five, so on and so forth. It's something we're considering. I, I'm not going to say it's <laughs> the biggest deal ever. It's not. It's not the biggest deal ever. But it's something to consider. It's something to factor in. Hey, do we have a lot of, you know, two to three syllable names? Maybe we need to be looking at more monosyllabic names. Or, you know what? Maybe we should go for a longer name. Why not? Right? Why not? Another thing, right? Another thing, thinking outside the box here. Perhaps this will end up on the list of things that should have stayed outside the box. Don't put them in the box. Keep them out of the box. Don't think about it. Uh, I considered the first initial and I noticed a thing and I, it's not totally new to me, but you know, again, with each successive kid that we have, we realize all the more that, you know, the situation's changing. It's evolving. It's updating, but, but, but where it stands right now, right? (laughs) We have two initials. Out of the 10 of us, and I'm including my wife here and myself, uh, in no small part because I've said, I think if this is a boy and the boy is born on my birthday this year, maybe this should be Garrett Ashley Mullet II. Maybe, maybe that's what it should be that we name this child Garrett Ashley Mullet II. And the boys are like, yeah, let's call this baby Garrett. Let's just assume that it's going to be a boy. Born on your birthday. We'll see, right? We'll see. But we have two initials in our family, each for A, Andrew, Ashley, D, Daniel, David, G, Garrett, Grace, L, Lauren, Lazarus. And after that, we have five instances of E, the initial E, Enoch, Elizabeth, Elihu, Evelyn, Emmanuel. Uh, Thereafter, second place goes to J, got lots of J names for some reason, four, James, John, Joseph, and Josiah. And then one each, M, S, and T, Matthias, Solomon, Theophilus. And it occurred to me as I was adding up the number of letters that we've used, we've only used nine There are 10 members of our family. We've only used nine letters that are unique for the first initial of each of our names. And last I checked, there's 17 other letters. And maybe we need more diversity in what letters we start with. You know, maybe it's not balanced. If it's all A's and D's and E's and G's and J's and L's and M's and S and T. They each get one. You know, maybe we need to branch out. 17. 17 letters in the alphabet. Surely we can find some names that start with those letters. So I did some work, right? Last night, Lauren took the four older boys to youth group. It was a Wednesday night. And I had gotten home later in the afternoon and was tired. And I was going to go pick them up. But she offered to actually take them and drop them off. And so while she was taking them to youth group, I sat down and made this spreadsheet and I worked on it and I made it my mission to come up with a name, whether this would be a first name or a middle name, a name for 
each letter of the alphabet that we have not used. I, I know you're going to say, oh, that's kind of silly. That's kind of funny. Uh, yes, it is. It is. It is silly. And it is funny. And that's okay. And I don't feel bad. I'm going to have some fun with it. Now, before I tell you what the names are that we're considering, you know, besides Garrett Ashley Mullet the second, which would make me Garrett Ashley Mullet the first, which would be super and fun and funny. Uh, I, I will tell you, I, I will tell you what these names are and why they appeal to me. But before I do, let's consider two passages of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament with regards to names. First, Ecclesiastes 7.1, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. What is this about? That's kind of morbid, you might say. Well, no. No, I don't think so. I don't think that's morbid. What it means when taken together is the important thing. Uh, Don't miss what it means taken together. A good name is better than precious ointment. What do you do with precious, uh, precious ointment? What is this about, right? What is that even? Think of like an expensive lotion or skin cream, something that's going to cause your healing process for dry, flaky, rough skin to be improved. And it's going to make your skin healthier and more vibrant and more protective, perhaps. It's going to help you to not get sick or infected or sunburnt or wrinkly or (laughs) ugly, right? Precious ointment is probably going to help with your smell. It's going to make you smell good going to make you look good. Well, a good name is better than precious ointment. But how would that relate to the day of your death? Well, I think I think that how it relates is if you have lived a life that is marked by godliness and a genuine love and respect for the people around you, if you've lived a life that is marked by wisdom and doing what is right and speaking only what is true and wanting to promote what is beautiful in a way that honors our creator who has made all beautiful things in their season, then your name will be remembered for that. That's what it means to have a good name. And we really don't know until you've lived your life, until you have proven yourself, you've been tested and shown to be of good character and sound judgment, and to be steadfast, and stalwart, and kind, and gracious, and self-controlled, and generous, brave. We don't know until, really, ultimately, the day of your death, whether you ultimately will be remembered as having a good name. We don't know. The day you're born, there are all kinds of hopes, and dreams, and aspirations. The day that you die is when The final calculations are done and made as to your legacy. And a good name is better than precious ointment. In fact, I would say there's something analogous in the way of reputation and the blessing that you have relationally with a good name. If you are trustworthy, if you are reputable, if you are thought well of and with good reason, this is of a piece with wisdom that you would desire that. You would pursue that. You would invest yourself 
to that end. Uh, also, a very similar passage, Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. Now, here again, we've got a compare and contrast. You think, well, but great riches, silver or gold, I could do so much with money. If I just had more money, right? If I just had more money, well, you know what? Maybe having a good reputation, having a good name, having good character, being credible, being trustworthy, giving good counsel, doing the right thing. Maybe that's something that is even better. And maybe sometimes you have to choose. Maybe sometimes you do. Not always, but sometimes. Because the people who have access and they either grant or don't access to great riches or silver and gold, uh, perhaps sometimes what they'll ask you to do and to say and to not do and to not say is going to cost you your good name and favor holistically in the long run. And in those cases, you should know what is worth more, what is more valuable, what's better. That money, when you've spent it, it's gone. Versus a good name, even long after you're gone, it's going to be a benefit to those who follow after you. And think of this. I Just think of this for a moment with me, if you will. What kind of a reward is there for those who are thinking about generations to come in a way that is loving and charitable versus those who don't care at all what happens to those who come after them. Once they're gone, they could not care less what happens to the next generation. You know, it's one thing to be careless, apathetic, unkind, uncharitable, irresponsible towards those who are your contemporaries. That's bad, right? You're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we think of that in the present so often. Do we think of it generationally as much as we should? And by generationally, I mean those who have preceded us and those who will follow after us, those who are our neighbors in not just space, but also time. Those we will not know, but who are affected or their legacy is affected. The work that they invested themselves in is affected or will be affected. Well, God knows, right? We might not know, but God knows. And so I think this is of a piece with why a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. I think this is also of a piece with honoring your father and your mother, that your days in the land may be long. These are closely related concepts. And I'll just level with you. Some of the reason why I podcast is because with the way that the world is going, there's a part of me that wonders, just what if, right? What if something happened to me and I wasn't there to teach my youngest children many of the things that they need to know and understand? And what if I was at least leaving them behind these podcasts to listen to? to where they could listen to these podcasts and they could know that I was storing these things away for them and that I was loving them in so doing. I was putting something away for a rainy day in recording these podcasts. Sometimes that is why I podcast. 
when I can't find other motivations, I think, well, that's enough of a motivation. And so also, sometimes when I podcast, I think of my grandparents. All my grandparents have passed away now. But sometimes I think about them and I think if they could hear me podcasting about these things, would that please them? Would that honor their memory? You know, my ancestors that I don't even know, you know some of them would probably be floored, but others I think would be honored. And I think that is good. I think that's important to keep in mind. And others who would be floored and they would not appreciate the things that I say on my podcast. Well, you know what? Maybe sometimes we do what we do and we call what we call as we see it uh, to correct what has been out of sorts by God's grace. We might be able to correct some things that have been out of sorts generationally. At least that's the hope that the Christian has in Christ. But you want to know about this list. You want to know what names we're considering besides just (laughs) Garrett Ashley Mullet II, which doubtless uh, will raise some eyebrows like, oh, good grief. (laughs) That's half the reason to do it, by the way. First off, and we'll just go alphabetically, okay? First off, B is for Boaz. I, for a long time, have liked this name, Boaz. I really have. It doesn't mean it's necessarily the name we're going to go with, but I love the character of Boaz in the story of Ruth. I love the character of Ruth. Uh, My grandmother's name was Ruth on my dad's side of the family. Ruth Mullet, Nisley was her maiden name. I love the character of Ruth in the book of Ruth that... She says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It's a remarkably brave and faithful statement and declaration and commitment. And she sticks by it. And she takes care of Naomi, even when Naomi has become bitter. She's so bitter. She tells people, don't even call me Naomi anymore. People who used to know her. When they go back to her homeland, don't even call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because God has made me bitter. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She says, call me Mara. But Ruth sticks by Naomi and God rewards Ruth. Even though she is not an Israelite, she is not one of God's people. God makes her one of his people. And he grafts her into the household of faith, into the family of faith. And he does it in the person of Boaz. Boaz is a Hebrew name and it means swiftness. And Boaz is a man of means and a man of authority and a man of good character. And Boaz not only allows Ruth to glean in his fields, to follow after the men as they're threshing, as they're harvesting and gather up what is extra that's left behind, Boaz also instructs those who are in the field to not bother her. Don't bother her. Don't give her a hard time. Don't harass her. Don't mistreat her. Don't be ugly to her. So Boaz provides for and protects both Naomi and Ruth when arguably, aside from wanting to please God and do what was right, there was no benefit that he was going to obtain thereby 
And that's remarkable. That's excellent. That is excellent and exemplary, and I love it. He goes further than that, though. He, he marries. <laughs> he marries Ruth, even though she's a foreign woman. She's a Moabitess. They don't worship God, those Moabites. They worship Molech, except Ruth has said, your God will be my God to Naomi, and she abides by that. And so I love the name Boaz. I love it. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> it would be different, but we'll see. Another name. Uh, this one will amuse and surprise people, and that's half the reason for putting it on the list. Uh, C is for Calvin. And part of the reason I put C for Calvin is because uh, a lot of people I'm friends with and family with are Calvinists, and it would just send them over the moon, I think, some of them, for me to name my son Calvin. And I can also anticipate, because I am on the board of directors for the Reformed Conservative, and there are, obviously, lots of Calvinists who are part of the Reformed Conservative. And in fact, that's kind of the point. TRC doesn't stand for the Reformed Calvinist or the Republican Calvinist. It stands for the Reformed Conservative. And yet, it could almost be the Republican Calvinist, and it would be all the same. I am not a Calvinist. I'm a Christian. I am a conservative and I'm a Christian. And I'm pleased to serve as long as they'll have me. And also at the same time, I think it would be funny to name my son Calvin. And when people ask, oh, like John Calvin? I'll say no, like Calvin and Hobbes. (laughs) No, like Calvin Coolidge. He was great. He was great. One of the unsung heroes of the 20th century in American history, Calvin Coolidge, Silent Cal. (laughs) F, the next unused letter in the alphabet we haven't tried yet. F is for Felix. And this one, I don't know. I was just looking for an F name, but Felix means lucky or successful. Lucky or successful, which is kind of cool. And it's a fun name. It's not too uh, serious, really. It's a fairly laid back name. We have some serious names in our family. Felix would not be a serious name. Maybe it would go well as a middle name. We'll see. I don't know anybody named Felix. Actually, I think Felix the cat when I think the name Felix. Nevertheless, I digress. It's on the list anyways. Uh, Next, speaking of more serious names, the name Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a four-syllable name. And also very unusual. I have never met anybody named Hezekiah that I can recall. Hezekiah is Hebrew for Yahweh strengthens. Yahweh strengthens. And I love the meaning of that. I love the significance. I like the way that it sounds. I do. I is for Israel. You could call him Izzy for short. That'd be fun. Israel, mullet. I've known one Older gentleman that I used to work with in my younger, younger days, briefly, his name was Israel. He was kind of weird. It wasn't like creepy or anything, just just a little bit different. And his name being Israel, uh, I noticed it. I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's cool that your name is Israel. And I don't know. I don't know how I feel entirely about naming a child Israel when people are going to be like, oh, like the country. But the name means 
God contends. And I am by no means embarrassed of the name just because some people are anti-Israel. It's a good name and it speaks to God's goodness. God contends. God fights for us. And that's what Israel means. God contends. Now, the only name on this list that is a girl's name, because we've got our girl's name picked out. By the way, in case you didn't know, we are settled up. If this is a girl, and we'll find out here in June, or we expect to, we hope to, when we have the ultrasound. But if this is a girl, we've had a girl's name picked out, actually, since before Evelyn was born. And then when we found out we were pregnant with Evelyn, we did not use the girl's name that we have picked out so long ago, which is Kellen. K-E-L-Y-N, Kellen, means beautiful. And Kellen, actually, according to one website that I looked at, Kellen is an abbreviation for Karen Hapok. And you say, well, that's a mouthful. And I say, well, that's why we wouldn't name our daughter Karen Hapok. We would not name our daughter Karen Hapok because it is a mouthful. But she was the youngest of Job's three daughters who are named after God restores his fortunes In the book of Job, it says that he had three daughters, and his three daughters were the most beautiful women in the land. And that, that, my friends, is an important thing to notice about God's economy with regards to beauty and with regards to female beauty in particular. (sighs) Not everybody is beautiful, but beauty is not a curse. Beauty is a good gift from God. And we see that in the daughters of Job. He has three beautiful daughters, and they are the most beautiful daughters, the most beautiful women in all the land. And the youngest of them is named Karen Hapuk. And that gets abbreviated to Kellen. And Kellen means beautiful. And we think that name is beautiful. And we think that there's a kind of lyrical symmetry if we do have another daughter, Lord willing, and we name her Kellen, because then we'll have Evelyn and Kellen, and that has a nice ring to it. Kellen's middle name, by the way, if you're curious, we have had that picked out also for a long, long time. Her middle name would be Aliana. Kellen Aliana Mullet. Aliana means noble and gracious in Latin. Now in Hebrew, it can mean my God is Yahweh, or my God has answered me supposedly. I don't know. I don't know which is correct. I see the Latin translation more often, noble and gracious. Either way, beautiful, noble, and gracious, that's a good name for a girl. Kellen Aliana Mullet, that's a good name. Back to boy names, though, for the letter N. N stands for Nathaniel. And this one surprised my wife because we had a friend in high school named Nathan who I had quite the falling out with in my 20s because he became a social justice warrior and he became all wrapped up in Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. He was a school teacher. To my knowledge, still is a school teacher. He's a smart and friendly and cheerful and bright and charming guy. Tall, used to have an Afro in high school. No, he's not black. He just had a big mop of hair, played soccer, always had a smile on his face. Loved the Lord, but he got all mixed up in CRT and social justice. And it got ugly because I tried to talk with him at length and we don't speak anymore. 
because it's the only way we could be peaceable at the end there, unfortunately. Uh, I loved him dearly. It broke my heart for things to go the way that they did. Um, Nathan is not a name that my wife would have expected me to have any proximity to in naming one of our kids, but it's a good name. It is a good name, generally speaking. Uh, I hope my friend is well, my old friend, but I look at Nathan the prophet. I look at Nathan, the son of King Saul. He is a noble sort. He is a noble character who is willing to protect and stick up for his friend David, his beloved friend David, even at peril to himself, even though it would be actually to his interest, humanly speaking, if God were not on his own side, <laughs> uh, accomplishing what he has said he's going to accomplish and taking away the kingdom from Saul, it would be in Nathaniel's interest to eliminate David. And yet this is his friend and he cares more about his friend than he does the whole kingdom. Nathaniel is a good name and it means God has given. God has given. Next up, O is for Obadiah. And here we could call a boy named Obadiah, Obi for short. And I tell Lauren, <clears throat> uh, his middle name should be Juan because I'm an honorary Hispanic, don't you know? It could be Obi-Wan Mullet. And she doesn't like that idea. <clears throat> she says, we've already got a John. And even if we didn't, the answer is no. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. She doesn't like that idea. Uh, Obadiah is a good name too, though. It means serving Yahweh. Obadiah. P is for Phineas. Phineas. We could call him Finn for short. That'd be fun. Finn would be fun. Phineas means mouth of brass. There was a very zealous Israelite by the name of Phineas in the Old Testament who put an end to a plague that was on the people of Israel because of their sin, because of their act of disobedience, their collective disobedience against God, carousing with foreign women. And Phineas put a stop to it. And when Phineas took decisive action, God lifted the plague. And that is quite the story. That is quite the story. It's quite the name. Mouth of brass. What does that mean? <laughs> what, what does that mean? Uh, not probably soft-spoken, this guy. He's probably going to say what needs to be said with sufficient volume and clarity. It's going to ring out. And I like that. Q. There's not a lot of names that start with Q. Uh, Quinn would be a name that starts with Q. It's the first one that came to my mind. I don't like that name over much. But Corinus, on the other hand, that's kind of a cool name. Carinus with a Q. Q-U-I-R-I-N-U-S. It means spear. This is a good Roman name, and it means spear. And if you'll recall, my first name means power of the spear or spear ruler. And so there's kind of a fun aspect if this is a baby boy and he's not born on my birthday and he isn't named Garrett Ashley Mullet. The second, Carinus, would be a meaningful nod to my first name, actually also to his maternal grandfather's name, because 
my wife's father's name is Gerald. Gerald is basically the same name. Uh, we have the same name. Gerald is just a different variation on Garrett. Garrett is a variation on Gerald. If you say it fast, you can hear that. But it means power of the spear or spear ruler. Carinus means spear. R is for Reuben. And Reuben actually is somewhat amusing. <laughs> Lauren and I and our boys are amused at the prospect because Reuben means behold a son. You have all these people, everybody that hears that we're pregnant, expecting Lauren's pregnant. I'm not pregnant, but we're expecting she's pregnant is like, oh, I hope it's a girl. And I'm like, what? Stop. There are plenty of girls in the world. If we have another one, I'll be happy. I will be pleased as punch. I will be happy for everybody who's happy. But I'm going to root for a boy just because, just because all y'all are rooting for a girl. And the odds are high that it'll be a boy if the past is any indication. And maybe we're supposed to raise up a whole mess of boys because they're needed and they need to have good character and a good education and be good heads of households in turn. And so it would be funny if this is an eighth son to name him Reuben, because Reuben means behold, a son. <laughs> behold, a son. <laughs> eh, oh, y'all, we're rooting for a girl. Ah, well, look, it's a boy. Hmm. <laughs> we could call him Rue for short. And by the way, too, I, I think Lauren is like, oh, that's so mean. But I was trying to think of like all the ways that kids could possibly take a name we would give and then make it like an insult just to you know brace ourselves for that possibility in case it makes a difference. Uh, Reuben, if we call him Rue, he could be called Kangaroo. That could be his nickname. I don't know. Maybe he would be a hip hop artist. I, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, another name, speaking of nicknames, Another name, you. I came up with Ulysses. I keep coming back to the name Ulysses. It's another name for Odysseus. Like think the Odyssey by Homer. He was the clever one of the bunch among the Achaeans who went to conquer Troy in the Iliad and the Odyssey. You read about his exploits more so in the Odyssey than the Iliad, admittedly. But Ulysses is also the name of one of my favorite presidents to read about, Ulysses S. Grant. I've read his memoirs. I read a really great biography about him by Ron Chernow. Ulysses S. Grant was a American hero. He really was. I realize he had a drinking problem, but he was a hero. He was brave and courageous and maybe not always as good of a judge of people as he should have been. He was too trusting. He was naive when it came to business. Uh, when he was president, he had a lot of corruption in his cabinet because he was too trusting of people and he shouldn't have been. But in battle, as the commander of armies, he won with the help of William Tecumseh Sherman. He won the Civil War for the North. You can thank Ulysses S. Grant for the outcome that was achieved. Humanly speaking, Abraham Lincoln Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman. 
And I'll just throw in for good measure my great, great, great grandfather, George Fisher McFarland. But Ulysses means to hate. And you might say, but you're a Christian, Garrett. You're a Christian. Why would you ever name your child Ulysses when Ulysses means to hate? And here's my reason. Because Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. There's a time to love and there's a time to hate. If you don't believe me, look it up. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8 specifically. There's a time to love and there's a time to hate. And there are too many Christians in this country who don't know that. And they need to know it. They need to know that there are behaviors and attitudes and ways of relating and modes of being that we should hate because we love God and because we actually do love our neighbor. We hate the things that are going to dishonor God and destroy our neighbor. Moving on. V. V is for valor. Valor being a virtue to do with bravery and courage. In fact, some have said that if you don't have courage. You don't have any of the other virtues. You have to have courage in order for any of the other virtues to count for anything. You can have all the other virtues, but if you fold like a wet newspaper on a Sunday morning at the first opposition, then what are those other virtues good for? Not much. You have to know when to stand firm. You have to know how to be very strong and courageous like God tells Joshua to be when he takes up the mantle of leadership after Moses. So I like the name Valor. Maybe it would be a middle name. Valor is my middle name. Could call him Val for short if it was a first name. That would be fun. W is for Walker. Walker has some fun history. It means to walk or to tread, as you might imagine. Originally, it had to do with shrinking or stretching clothes. Actually, X is for Xavier. And here, no, I do not have in view Francis Xavier. We are not Catholics. Most people who go for the name Xavier, uh, I think, are Roman Catholics. We are not Roman Catholics. Although we do get asked with this many kids. Oh, are you Catholic? No. All right. Are you Mormon? No. Uh, hmm. Interesting. But Xavier, <laughs> Xavier means the new house. And also... Uh, and this is just for funsies, right? It's just for funsies. I was looking for names. Uh, I think Professor Xavier from the X-Men. <laughs> Sue me, right? Sue me. It doesn't all have to be serious. Why, right? The letter Y. Um, Lauren has told me before, she likes the name Joel. She likes the name Joel. She likes what it means. And she likes the way that it sounds. The big problem for us, I'll just be honest with you, is Joel Osteen. He's such a problem. He's got such a punchable face. I'm sorry. Lord, forgive me, but I think he does need to be punched. I don't know if he's ever been punched, but odds are high. He has it coming. But speaking of good names, right? A good name is better than great riches or precious ointment. Joel, to our way of thinking, to my way of thinking in particular, has gotten something of a bad name from Joel Osteen in our day. But it's still a good name. It means Yahweh is the Lord. 
Yahweh is the Lord. So what do we do, right? She likes that name and I don't like Joel Osteen. What we could do, what we could do if we wanted to be unusual here is we could spell it with a Y and it would be Yol or Yoel. And it would actually probably be more in keeping with a Hebrew pronunciation. I, I could be wrong about that, but I think that would be correct. Now, why is that significant, by the way? I'll tell you in a minute. I'll tell you in a minute. First, I'll tell you what Z stands for. But I do want to talk about why we have so many Hebrew names and so many Bible names. Z, what kind of a Z name could we use? Uh, I think of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. You could call him Zeph for short. It means Yahweh has hidden or Yahweh has protected. I like the meaning of this name, given our circumstances right now, along very similar lines to liking the name Hezekiah, Yahweh strengthens. Yahweh has hidden, Yahweh has protected, Yahweh strengthens. I also like the name Israel, God contends. These are good names. Now, they may not all be (laughs) uh, good names for children of ours, but Still, I mean, nevertheless, they're good names. So we'll see, right? We'll see. And as we go along, we'll ask and we'll talk and we'll consider and we'll think and we'll study and we'll pray because we want our kids to have good names and we want our names for our kids to be meaningful. And actually, as I was just saying, you know, that brings me back to this question of, you know, why do we have so many Bible names for our kids? More to the point, why do we have so many Hebrew names? We're not Jewish, right? We're not Jewish. Well, that's true. We're not. We are not Jewish. But as Christians, I look at the history of the church in relations with Jews who do not embrace Christ as Messiah. I look at the relationship of Christians throughout the past 2,000 years, and I see often that Christians who were Gentiles forgot, it seems, that Jesus came as king of the Jews. He was born king of the Jews. The 12 disciples were Jews. Most of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament were Jews. The exceptions were characters like Ruth, for instance, who was a Moabitess. Most of them were Jews. And it pleased God to reveal himself to all nations through his people the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those are good names because of what God did in their lives. And when their descendants would name their children and they would name them in statements about who God is, there was so much that was good about that, that compared to the way a lot of my generation names their children, I think I'll go with the Jews. I would rather identify myself with the Jews quite frankly. I mean, not that I need Jewishness, but that was a good example for them to set that they would name their children things like Hezekiah or Nathaniel or Obadiah or Yol or Zephaniah. These are statements about who God is, the character of God, the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the faithfulness of God the loving kindness of God, the protectiveness of God. 
How God provides for his people, these are good things for us to know and to keep at the fore of our minds. And you know what? When they're also unusual names, and when people ask, hey, um, what does your name mean? Every time you tell people what your name means, you are making a statement which honors God and you're worshiping God, provided you are living according to that name and you live up to that name. And that's the other reason. That's the other reason that we have these names for our children is I want to not just say, here's your name, so you're going to be great because you're inheriting a great name. Here's a name for you to live up to or to look up to. Your own name, I want you to look up to it because if it points to God and his character and his goodness, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, his truth, well then, it will go well with you. It will go well for you. He will go before you. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for them. That's what I want for my sons. That's what I want for my daughters. Now, interestingly, a lot of these names are still two and three syllables long. I'll be honest, I favor the four-syllable options. Hezekiah, Nathaniel, Obadiah, Zephaniah. Those are cool names. Those are really cool names. They're all cool names. I probably like Boaz the best, as I've said, but we'll see. What do you think? If you've got some name recommendations, let us know. Otherwise, you can pray for us that we have some good discussion and are intentional about this. We give our son or daughter a good name. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.